Hello, and welcome to the final IBMS podcast of the year. In this special festive episode, we're joined by quality control scientist and Bake Off star Yan Tzu to talk about cell lines and brining Christmas turkeys, after which former biomedical scientist and haematology, Reverend Christopher J. Lee joins for Lab Life. Hope you enjoy and see you again in 2022. Two IBMS members have been recognised for their outstanding record of continuous professional development at the Science Council CPD Awards 2021. Congratulations to IBMS fellow Mark Sioni, who won the CPD Award in the Chartered Scientist CSI category, and Victoria Mosey, who was commended in the same category. The latest edition of our Superlab comic is now available as a free downloadable digital copy. The comic is for Key Stage 2 children and features all sorts of fun biomedical science-related activities. Download your free copy via our website now. Earlier this month, our members took part in events up and down the country to celebrate National Pathology Week 2021, which took place from the 1st to the 7th of November. You can take a look at the highlights and our online news roundup now. Hello and welcome to another IBMS podcast. Today we are joined by Yan Su, who works in quality control at the Francis Crick Institute Cell Services team. But many of you will recognise her from the Great British Bake Off. Yan, welcome to the IBMS pod. Oh, hi. Hello, hello. I'm going to hand you over to my colleague Jordan, who's going to get things going today. Jordan, over to you. Yes, so uh, thanks for joining us, Yan. Welcome to the pod. And um, we've just heard from Rob in the intro that you work in the quality control team in the Francis Crick's cell services department. So could you kick us off by just telling us a little bit more about what is the role you do there and why is it so important? So, so we're in a little team as a side offshoot of cell services. Mm. So we can, we're able to do the work of cell services. And the cell, main function of cell services is to provide um, uh, cells to the research scientists to do their experiments on, in a, in a nutshell. So, um, but also what happens is, is that when uh, research scientists have uh, manipulated the cell lines to what they want them to be, so like they... Take some gene, take some genes away, add some genes in, they, or whatever they do to it. Manipulation, they then rebank them with us, so that when we're a sort of like a storage facility, as, 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 uh, sorry, facility as well. Um, so what happens is, is when they return them back, we then put them through a barrage of tests, so um, to make sure that they're nice, clean, and healthy, and so no mycoplasma, which can affect the cell line. Um, cell lines growth and also genome sequence and also um, we prove they are what they say they are because and I tell you this to students that come in uh, that learn about cell work is that cell lines pretty much look similar under the microscope you can't actually tell that much difference from one to the other the growth rates are different so like human cell lines grow a little bit slower than um, animal cell lines say like mouse grows a lot faster than human cell lines mm. But other than that, they all just look like little blobs under a microscope. So what we do is we use PCR to um, not only test for mycoplasma, so we test for mycoplasma using PCR and um, and also use PCR to species identify. So we can species identify between um, animal, different animals and human cell lines. And then we then go further testing because if it's a human cell line, we then go further testing to identify what type of human it is. Because like there's different types of human cell lines. I don't think you've heard of uh, things like HeLa, which is yeah, uh, yeah, HeLa, um, HFFs, human fetal foreskin, uh, two nine three. So that these are from different type, different humans. They originate from different humans. So therefore, we use PCR, uh, a technique called STR, single tandem repeat testing, uh, to identify the human that has given that cell line. And yeah. we have, I mean, in the past, so to give you like a few horror stories, um, is that they can either submit and think it's their cell line and have been working for it for several weeks or whatever, and then it comes to us, we test it. They are either, and then it's, as long as it's clean for mycoplasma testing, we then test for um, species, and then we find maybe mouse cell line in with a human cell line. That can happen because if you're sharing, as, as here, research uh, teams share um, equipment and stuff and you know accidents happen and you can accidentally 
you know, even dropping one single mouse cell line cell into a human flask, human human cell line flask, it can um, outgrow a human. So like I said, Addison has happened because equipment is shared and the rest. But more more or less, usually, ninety nine percent of the time, it's exactly what the researcher says it is. It's um, and then what we also do is if their cell line has come in from outside, so not come from us, it's coming from an outside source. Uh, the research scientists are very good. They they submit their cell lines for testing for mycoplasma. So we have a three prong attack. We have PCR testing um, and fluorescence and agar testing. So we don't don't rely just on the one technique because um, different species of mycoplasma can show can present very uh, uh, over one technique over another. Okay, so mycoplasma is the um, most frequent contamination you see within these cell lines that are being used across the entire institute. Yeah, but it's the one, it's the, it's the contamination that can infect the cell line without you really realising. If, if it's contaminated with like bacteria or, or um, uh, spore uh, or fungi, you spoil it straight away because it'll outgrow and also like, the smell is atrocious. Um, but what it is is that those contaminations will kill the cell line mm. mycoplasma is, is more like it's, it's, it's a it's a it's a bit not it's, you don't realize it's happening and you might re, you might realize because it's sort of like it slows down the growth of the cell line the, the cell line might not grow as well so people can spot it but not have actual proof that it's there and we have wow. like technique to test it okay it goes under the surface a bit more it's a bit more yeah, yeah. Of contamination yeah important about that is because there can there's different types it's like um so mycoplasma can be slow growing or fast growing and slow growing it can be in with the cell line for ages and ages and the whole point of detecting it and get eradicating it because you can eradicate it is that while it's there for any length of time it can it can change the sequence of the cell line so if the sequence of the cell line is important to the researcher they do not want mycoplasma to be in there infecting. Have you ever um, come across an instance where it's actually infected uh, one of the researchers' cell lines undetected and it's, and it's affected their research project and how? Um, we, we, we test it and it's, it's quite funny because we test it and we don't really know the outcome. It's our job to tell them. Yeah. We don't really know the outcome. But from our, my experience and now my experience of my team is my team our team because we're the unit is that it's sometimes it's quite difficult because the different species of because there's various i can't remember how many different species there are it's a bit like mycobacterium like mycobacterium is like different species they have growth slow growers and fast growers the slower it is that harder it is to detect because you can only detect over a certain concentration use the three-pronged attack we use pcr for instance and agar because they're three very different techniques. And the PCR can pick it up, up to an extent, up to a certain concentration. Fluorescence can pick it up to a certain concentration. And agar, because you leave for a long period of time, can pick it up at very low concentrations. But with those three different techniques, there's like pros and cons. PCR, it takes like a few hours. Fluorescence and agar, fluorescence takes three days and agar takes like two, three weeks. Four uh-huh. weeks now. Ended that period, so so you'll pick the best one depending on the needs of that moment um, in the lab. I mean, what we tend to do is that we, as a as a as a strict rule, we do fluorescence and agar, no problem because it is very cheap and easy to set up. But um, PCR expensive because it's fast, and actually it picks up quite a low concentra- concentration. But it's, it's with with within that because it's expensive. We um, have to limit how we don't test absolutely everything. We have to limit it. All budget related, isn't it? I mean, you all, we all know what to do. As it is most of the time in science. Most of the time, yeah. It would be great if we could use PCR on everything, but it's, that's simply not possible. Well, just a couple more things I wanted to cover before I pass you over to Rob to talk about baking. What was your journey into this world? What did you study originally and what's your kind of background in biomed? So originally I studied, I was at the university... Uh, College London, which is just across the road from here. Mm. Um, I did medicinal chemistry because I thought, oh, that's really exciting it, it's, um, to design new, not new and novel uh, drugs for therapy and all the rest. Turns out I'm not great at chemistry. <laughs> I'm okay. I mean, I've, I've got a I've got a degree out of it. 
the year, so like quite a long time ago. So we're talking about I've graduated in '93, got my degree. I just sort of like drifted from like one. So I started off like uh, just applying for jobs just to get experience because in those days, with experience you can't get a job and you can't get a job without experience. So it was like a, a, a double edged sword. And I, mm. what, what I did was I volunteered at a cancer research place um, in Hammers at um, Charing Cross Hospital and then just learned to sell work there. And then, funnily enough, this isn't my, the first time I've worked here worked for this department in its first carnation incarnation it was um at south mims uh, cancer research uk so i worked for this department in 96 to 2000 mm. and then i went away learned pcr because at that point in time they didn't have pcr machines or anything like that went away uh learned how to do pcr with blood service uh, became a biomedical scientist because it was then we had to um, all be registered, uh, we had to be state registered. And then um, did and also did a stint at uh, the TB lab at Public Health England, which you also need to be um, state registered to work at. And then I came full, full circle about four years ago, back to here. I started here just before I started Bake Off, which is uh-huh. nice. They actually, I mean, my boss, who I've known for like over 20 years, was able to give me more leeway than I think I would have done if I was still working in a um, in a government role. Um, and has science always been something you've been fascinated by since you were like a kid, or was it something you kind of uh, came a bit later on? Well, I love it. Do you know what? I love all aspects of it, but I really love so being a, a microbiologist, so sort of microbiologist, biomedical scientist in um, bacteriology microbiology all fascinates me and I got into a not a Twitter argument a Twitter discussion on why like yesterday this is yesterday on why COVID isn't like chicken pox because there was an oh if you get infected you can get chip it's just like chicken pox you, you, become, you become immune forever and I said well actually chicken pox you, you don't become immune it stays in your body forever and then if you become um a, a little bit uh, unwell, like a little bit immunely suppressed, it comes back as shingles, and then you can become infected. You can infect other people with chickenpox. With the sh- you won't, you know, infect other people who's had chickenpox, but you infect people that know. Yeah. And I sort of not got any, but because it fascinates that I'm not being trained. I'm not a trained virologist, but it fascinates me the whole. Yeah, because viruses are fascinating, and if they weren't so deadly, it'd be like you know, like. It, their mechanism and all the rest so I, I, everything like that interests me how bacteria works how mycoplasma works I just uh, yeah it's always 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 learning well one more from me before I hand over to Rob it's just a little bit more about the research papers you were doing because in one year you were named as an author in five published papers including one in the Lancet and, uh, <laughs> and you published a recipe in the British Bake Off cookbook all in one year so well done and what, what, were you, what, was, what was the research you were involved in can you tell us a little bit about that before I hand you over oh, to Rob? Was, uh, you know what that was with um, the first incarnation of Public Health England so I, was, I worked for the one before that because they renamed themselves Public Health England but it's actually the Health Protection Agency yeah. in the TB unit at Whitechapel and um, such a great project that was a great project and my boss uh, then uh, Professor um, Drobneski, he was um, he hired us to uh, oversee a project called Predict. Was that was again it was for immunosuppressed patients um, that could become um, TB if they had t- later TB. For it, what would it take to, for the act, active TB to um, per, not pronounce itself? To uh, to manifest, all oh, right. And um, so it it that is basically a Pandora's box waiting to be open. That's what he described it as because the, the entire population latent TB doesn't manifest unless you're immunosuppressed, or it may never man- manifest. And um, so there's a test to test for latent TB, but if you start testing, then how? Where do you stop? So they started testing. Um, the communities where it would be most prevalent that they would have latent TB, so we were testing like so. The, the amount of information that came from just taking blood uh, blood samples from these um, 
groups, individual groups, mostly around like East London, um, uh, the, uh, different ethnic, um, so it was, it was ethnic di ethnically diverse as well. So like just, uh, and also where else was interesting? The homeless community, they were taking blood. Because what it is, is that if they're in a home, like um, in a hostel, it's a crowded situation. They've been immunosuppressed because they're out in the uh, out in the open. Mm. So it's a lot of factors to take in, which is why there were so many papers, because there was a lot of different um, approaches to this sort of research. All the samples taken, we the samples were taken over a period of two years, and I was receiving us. I was doing thirty samples a day for over two years, so we had a lot of data. And from mm. that data, they were able to approach. Uh, the different aspects of latent TB and how to detect it. And that's why there were five papers. Five mm. papers plus possibly more, I don't know. And then I was able to put them on the CV. But what's the significance of identifying it on a large scale? That was exactly it. That was exactly the question. Because what it is, is that from this then research, I suspect that what they were trying to get at is, do we then go large scale and who would bankroll it? Ah. Uh. It's again, we come full circle back to the money. Mm. So it, it's it's a, it's, a, it's a, and that's why my my boss at the time said it's a Pandora's box because if you don't know, then you don't have to act on it. But once you do know, you then it, with mora morality dictates dictates that you should. It, like at the same time, it's it was fun. In the sense it was it was really interesting. You know, like everything interests me. That was like yeah. going down that rabbit hole and. Um, like yeah, I mean, joking aside, it's it's a really, from a sociological point of view, and and, and talking about um, housing. So then you have to go into like sociological like housing because even though there shouldn't be, there are pockets of the community where people are overcrowded in their homes. And as you well know, is that if you've got a, a infectious person, if you're living in a mansion and you're infectious, you're unlikely to have. Um, communicated that disease to somebody else it would be unlikely there's no gold standard of sizing of housing and rooms and all the rest and crowd overground and affect one on the other we're going to talk now a bit more about baking and science so i'll hand over to rob yes thank you very much jordan i've got the the good job of going from latent tb morality and socio-economics straight into the great british bake-off <laughs> a very natural transition <laughs> Fast forward it all the way to like the middle. We go. Oh, what, what, what about the baking? <laughs> <laughs> well, well, let's jump back into it. I think you were. It was 2017 when, when you were on the show. Yeah. Yeah. Um, tell us about how how you got onto that show in the first place, and whether science played played a role in that. Uh, science didn't play a, play a role in in why I wanted to go on the show. And I'll tell you a funny story. What it was is the season before we were watching. My wife and I was watching um, the extra slice, and they were giving out those cakes, you know, where they look like you. And I oh, said yeah, yeah. to my wife and said, I, "I want one of those." <laughs> and that's where it grew. And then what it was is that that year, well, no, it was the year before I saw the cake. And then that year that I could have applied, I didn't because I was studying for my masters for in biomedical sciences. And I said. And it's really strange how things say, because I, you know, if I, say, I say a lot of things, but they don't come true. But I said to her at the time, I said, I won't apply until I've got my master's. And then I got my master's. And then Mar and then Mary said, oh, are you going to apply now? I said, yeah, I guess so. But if I apply, I apply, I'll apply this one time, it's season eight. Apply this one time. And if I don't get on, I'm not going to apply again. And then what else? And I think I told that story to the people that were like at the audition. And one of them said, well, we better get you on then, hadn't we? <laughs> yeah, if we don't do it now, never. <laughs> I'm not going to do it again. Because like, it's season eight. It's, um, in Chinese culture, number eight is lucky. So I, I took it as like, But also the previous year, because I was still working at um, Public Health England, I was doing all the technical bakes that they were doing and then bringing in the next day for work. So I was baking the technical base, not with, obviously not now that I know that technical, but I use the actual real instructions because they publish it afterwards, but I was baking it just as proof that I could, I can do the technical base. So let's, let's see what I can, let's see what I can do for real. But yeah, it was, uh, that's how I got on. How, how did you find juggling? Because 
the, a lot of the people have got full-time jobs. Some people don't. I, I know that you were working throughout. How was that? That must have been very stressful oh, and tiring. Oh, it almost killed me. It was a good job I was that age because I don't think I could do it now. These days, I could not do it now. It almost killed me. It was uh, that. So what it was is that they, you sort of, you have to practice and you sort of know what you're baking. They, so they mm-hmm. gave you a place and they give you the brief and all the rest. Of you, so you know, and then you're practicing and practicing and practicing. Once filming starts, and this was before we were in a bubble, so I couldn't stay it there permanently and practice there, which I, I don't think it was that would have been easy either, personally. But what it was is I was coming to work, nine to five, getting home, uh, bombing down my dinner, staying in the kitchen, which, by the way, was like a tiny... It's been furbished since. It's been taken to, it's to like we've had a renovation since. But like it was tiny, tiny kitchen in a, in a two bedrooms, Victorian terrace, a really old kitchen, freezing, and my oven was lopsided. So in order to, <laughs> in order to make my bakes level, I had to put a spirit level in there to make sure and prop it up with a wooden spoon. So and so this is all filmed. And actually, to shut the oven door, I had to stick a bulldog clip to keep it shut. <laughs> that was how I started. And then what it was, I would bake and bake and bake until like one or two or three in the morning, go to bed for a few hours, wake up, go to work. So in between, that was what I was practicing. And that was, oh my God, that was so knackering. And, and you made it, you, you were quite, were you knocked out with three rounds to go? Is that right? Yes. Have I got that right? And, and were you glad knocked when you out, got knocked out? Lay down. <laughs> <Sorry>? <laughs> Were you glad when you got knocked out? Were you thinking, my God, thank, you know, I can finally have a bit of a rest? You know what? Or was, did you feel really disappointed? No, it was It was literally by that point, I was like, thank God. And I actually, I think, because you're mic'd up the entire time. And at one point I was walking across the quad, like the, the grassy bit. And I said, right, you lot, you lot, I have to stop it now because my job, because my jo- I love my job. This is This is a fantastic gig, as in like, my bosses are really supportive. You, you don't really get how good it is unless you've been to somewhere really... I've been to some... It's, they're okay. I'm not going to diss anybody else. But this job is... I work for my best friend. So um, I was saying uh, saying to them, like in the mic, because I can't see them, I said, right, this is, this is ridiculous now. If I lose my job, what, what does this get me? This gets me nothing. And so like, I was just talking to myself and whoever was listening at the other end and the other end of the mic. I don't want to lose it because I've worked very hard to get where I am. Five papers is not a, is no no mean feat, you know. Yeah, yeah. One year because there was the, <laughs> and that's not included, you know, like that's, well, that wasn't including the one that we had in nature to do with Saldo, so which I'm most proud of. <laughs> I didn't even write that one. Um, so yeah, it was it was it was tough, but I was relieved. Yeah. Because I think, you know, like, if I win it, one, it's so what? What does that really, you know? I know there's people who've been successful, but that's not what I wanted out of it. My whole aim was to get that cake of an extra slice. <laughs> and I got that. that hey. <laughs> <laughs> and and you, you were quite scientific in, in your approach on the show, Jan. Let me talk. I've got one of the titles of one of your bakes here in front of me. Or it's mango salmon roe cake made with liquefied agar gel. So how much did um, the scientific <laughs> approach actually affect your style of baking in the show and, and in everyday life? Well, so that one, that one was the banana ramen. So it had to be banana cake, even though it's not my favourite cake. It wasn't my best cake, but it just for the pun. I wanted, because I, I, <laughs> I knew it wanted to be... A, 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 do you know what? It wasn't even the ramen that started me off. It's the liquefied agar. Yeah. The agar, mango agar balls is because I was working here and making agar every day to make, you know, like you run, we run those PCR gels, yeah. the classic PCR. So you like, we put under UV and see, see the bands. Um, that, because I knew that recipe off by heart, I, I knew that's what I wanted in the cake. And from that, I built around, oh, what, what can I do? What can I do? Cause it was a illusion cake. That was illusion cake. What can I do? It was either that or sushi. But a bowl of noodles looked better, and actually, I could, was achievable in the time that they told us. So that was that was when I was I was still sort of like toying with the idea, and then I thought, all oh, right, so it's going to be ramen. No, and I think banana rama had just come back before. <laughs> so I went banana ramen. Okay, it's going to be banana cake. 
then just carried on from there. But um, yeah, <laughs> nice. it's, 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 it's but it stemmed from that one the agar that I make every day here. Obviously, I didn't use this agar; I use food grade agar. Yeah. But the recipe's still the same because it's a one in a hundred with water. So I knew I knew what the recipe. I know what the recipe is, and then had to experiment with the mango because if the mango was too sour, it didn't set. So then I played around with the ratios. Brilliant. Well, that seems like a really nice note to take you on to a little quiz we've quiz we've devised for you here, Jan, uh, which is called "What's on Your Plate." And it's, it's Christmas themed. So on Christmas Day, do you have a starter? Uh, this year I am because um, I saw online this guy, uh, he made like it was a brown butter and it's a really simple but tasty. Um, so it's not really a starter, it's a side dish. And I really want to do a sourdough on, that, on, in, on the morning of Christmas because it just makes the house smell so lovely. So yeah, it's going to be brown butter and um, sourdough. Nice. And question number two, what, what's for the main course, Jan? Oh, so um, we've got 10 coming round, but actually it doesn't matter about number because I still always make the same uh, meats. So uh, it's uh, going to be a rolled turkey breast, rib of beef, and a um, belly of pork. Oh, delicious. All the trimmings made from scratch, well, apart from the past, made from scratch. And what about afters? Anything, anything following that main? Yeah, always. At least five desserts. There's going to be five. <laughs> five desserts. There's a trifle. Uh-huh. Because my dad loves a trifle. There's got to be a, there's going to be a roulade, a meringue roulade, Christmassy type thing. Uh, Mum loves um, fit roll, so I usually do like a crackalan Christmas flavour. Um, but again, these are made over, so I don't make them all on the same day because that would absolutely kill me. Um, uh so I would make the the profiteroles uh, the day before and freeze uh, the week before and freeze them. So that's profiteroles. What else? Chocolate cake for the little ones because they only like chocolate cake, and something else, something a mystery one. So it's at least five because everybody likes nice. something different, and I want to make everybody happy, which is the whole point of Christmas, right? Not it's not about the presents. No longer, do you know what? I tell you something. It's no longer about the presents. Because since we had our house refurbished, we've got a lot less storage space and we discovered that we don't need all the, we didn't need any of the rubbish that was in our cupboards or wardrobes that we got rid of. Don't need it. Nice. Good food, good company. Well, I've got, I've got a few more quick questions for you. And these are a bit more science-based, Jan. So we'll hopefully be able to help out some of our, (laughs) some of our listeners at home. Or not. How, How do you stop a turkey drying out? Uh, do you know what I would say brine it yeah you're not as long as you're not there's no health issues with people overdosing on salt I would brine always brine the turkey because that's what we do we we like we brine the chicken nice good tip get get the brine correct because it don't you don't want over salty so do get use a recipe and and weigh because that's weights and measures as well weigh your turkey and um, do the brine concentration correctly. And roast potatoes, how do you get them to crisp up, Jan? Ah, so use the right type of potatoes, so a low, so a dry weight content. So we're talking about, ma- I feel like, like people swear by King, um, King Edwards, but I prefer Maris Pipers. So, um, and if you're listening in America, then I think Yukon Gold is the one that you go for. Um, so it's a dry, higher dry matter because you don't want anything that's too waxy because it will be soggy potatoes unless you like that sort of thing. And then, um, so do you know what I found is that roast potatoes are essentially chips, but because they're crisp on the outside, fluffy on the inside, and so you um, really hot pan, hot fat, and cook. They you always take longer to cook than you realise. Yeah. Yeah, because if you think, oh, it's going to take, or you turn up the oven at the very end and whack on, put in the pan and heat it, it takes, if you think it takes 15 minutes, it's going to take 30. Because it's always, we always, no matter what, and after 20 odd years of cooking Christmas dinner, worked out that um, we've always been waiting for the, the roast potatoes. So now I, I do the, oh, so another secret is if you do them in advance, Finish them off in the air fryer. <laughs> oh, nice. If you've got one, obviously. But these days, air, air fryers like my godsend. 
So next up, Jan, just two more of these science baking questions. How do you stop your Christmas cake from getting burnt? Whenever I make it, the outside always burns and the middle is raw. So, do you know what? I've never made a Christmas cake, but from what I can gather, depending on, it depends on the size as well. If you've got like a standard cake tin, what's about eight inch cake tin, it's lower, it's low and slow because it's a denser cake and actually there's liquid, high liquid content as well. So low and slow. So if you're going at 170, take it down to 150 and it's longer. And then what it is also is that, so Val taught, like taught, some of the things that she taught is, is, is incredibly um, uh, useful. She says, listen to the cake. So if it's like going bubble, 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 it's not yet done. If it's going plop, 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 you can actually switch off the oven, cover it, and it'll cook in its residual heat, and it'll be nice and moist in the middle. That that's the same for like it. Not so good for if you're making brownies because um, yeah. you never like you can. If you do that, you can overcook the brownie and become a like dry mess. But like Christmas cake and um, also a probe, Nola cooking probe. Temperature probe, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think you've got like. You, I can't remember what temperature is. Um, so my friend James, he makes Christmas cakes every year, and he that's what he uses. He uses a probe. And so what you do, you go into the densest part, middle, it will tell you what temperature it's reached. Nice. 90-something. Like I, I can't remember. But, yeah, he's got it on his um, – if anybody wants to follow him, he's Cluck Muck Cook, and he's on Instagram. So he has, like, a, a tutorial on his one. That I Brilliant. And yeah. finally, why don't people like sprouts, Jan? I don't know if that's scientific or not, but why don't they, and do you like them? <laughs> oh, but it, what it is, is depends. So, like, people can say they don't like rice, but that's because they have the wrong type of rice. They've, it's been, they've, if they don't like rice, it might be because they've, it's been cooked the wrong way for them or they've had, like, bad rice. It's not mm. relationships. You're not, you're not into relationships. <laughs> you've had bad relationships all your life. <laughs> um. So yeah, sprouts is because you're cooking them till they're like they change colour and they and they smell like you know parts. Yeah. yeah, good stuff. But what I'm saying is al dente just cooked in the middle. You toss it with a little bit of um, butter. Delicious. We so like in Far East, a really similar dish. There's like um, it's Brussels Brussels tops. So it's yeah. exactly the same plant, but what it is, they then slice it up and then just stir fry it with a bit of garlic. Oh, nice. It's delicious. Oh, my God, it's so good. Stir fry it. Ch- chop it up and stir fry it with a bit of garlic. Instead. Oh, break some rules this Christmas. But also what it is, is that people eat sprouts because it's tradition, whether it's yeah. or not. So, But I, I, we buy the Brussels the sprout tops because it tastes so much nicer. Fantastic. Well, I'm going to pass you over to Jordan now for the quick fire round. Jordan? Thank you, Rob. Yeah, so we usually end with this round, just a quick round of rapid questions. So, okay. So are you ready for the first question? So if I had to eat one meal for the rest of my life, what would it be? What would it be for you? Would it be for me? Yeah. You know what? Roast dinner. Roast dinner. Roast dinner. So versatile. Yeah, yeah. Mm, good choice. As long as we have to cook it. <laughs> so the next question is, what piece of advice would you give to someone starting out in baking? Learn how to make bread. Make bread and everything else will follow. If you can master bread, then you can master all of it. It's, it's, I love making... Well, that's personal choice because I love making bread. But what it is is that if you make bread by hand from scratch, no machines, don't use machines, use your hands, feel, feel it. That's what I would advise. And then that, from there, you can make your bread, sandwiches, pizza, calzone, because it's versatile. Just the one dough can make all these things. Amazing. That's really good to know, actually. And then the same question, but this time, one piece of advice you'd give to someone starting out in biomedical science? I don't know, you know, because I didn't. I was lucky, and I'll tell you the honest truth, I was lucky being in the right place at the right time because where I was when I was, uh, we had to be state registered, I had a very supportive um, network. So you can go, okay, this is a good piece of advice. If you think that it's not for you after your first job at any lab, try a different lab. 
it's like it's what what was I saying before about you having the wrong if you've had the wrong rice or wrong um uh, Brussels sprouts is because you're, you're you it's been done you know like it's not quite right for you at that moment in time don't be disheartened with any job if you if it's like your first job in um, biomedical sciences because there's the the field is vast and wide and you just have to find your your nirvana absolutely and a few more on these questions then the favorite dish i baked on bake off was do you know what i really enjoyed making that pie that um showstopper pie because it was just having the time of my life i loved it i loved doing that one. Oh, and the caramel showstopper do you know what i loved so this is the thing you've got to know about uh, bake off you've got to write the recipe i loved writing the recipes for the signatures but they were a little bit more boring Loved doing the actual showstoppers whilst I was in the tent, but I hated writing them up because it was so faffy. It was like, you've got to remember this, got to remember that. I knew how to do it, but I had to write it out so that they, they knew how I did it. So a couple, final couple Christmassy themed ones. My favourite Christmas movie is... Oh, uh, Love Actually. I know it's, I know it's, it's not everybody's cup of tea, but it's, I just love watching it. It's, it's not Christmas unless I watch Love Actually. The final sentence is, on Boxing Day, I always... Oh, have a sandwich. Boxing Day sandwich. Turkey sandwich. <laughs> yeah, all right. I, so it's the same as in the tent, same as out in real life. Is I taste, if I'm doing a big meal for other people, I taste everything. I've made sure. And I, if you saw the offcuts during the show. I was constantly having putting something in my mouth, just eating and tasting and making sure it tasted right is I do that on Christmas Day. And so by Christmas lunch or Christmas dinner, I'm not hungry anymore because I've eaten everything like at least twice. So my favourite part is Boxing Day sandwich where everything is like cold cuts and I have like a sandwich this thick. What was that? I was probably cheer batter this year. But like meats, potatoes, sprouts, by the way, chopped up, just put in there, just have it. And then just that in a sandwich. <laughs> Okay, well, that's the end of all my questions. And I think uh, that wraps up the podcast, Rob. Yeah, it certainly does. Jan, thank you so much for your time. It's incredibly appreciated. And uh, if any spare seats come up at your Christmas dinner, just let us know. And me and Jordan will be around there in a flash. Welcome to another Lab Life, and today we're joined by a very special guest. We're with Reverend Christopher J. Lee, who is a retired senior biomedical scientist in haematology and an ordained Anglican priest in the Church of Wales. His career at the University Hospital Wales spanned 44 years, and he also spent some time working in Africa, helping to train laboratory staff, where he developed extensive expertise in parasitology, including diseases like malaria. Welcome to Lab Life, Chris. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much, Jordan. Lovely to be with you. So, could you just start by introducing yourself and well, how you started to do this career as both a religious priest and a biomedical scientist? Well, yes, of course. My name is uh, Christopher Lee, which I share with uh, a film star uh, who was famous in the 1960s and 70s for playing horror movies about vampires and Dracula. So it was always a great icebreaker when I said my name was Christopher Lee. And it was curious because, by coincidence, the speciality that I chose eventually to study was hematology. And so uh, there were many comments about, you know, having a laugh, somebody from hematology or blood bank by the name of Christopher Lee. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but there it is. There it is. And... Um, I started, actually, uh, in 1971. But in the first couple of years of my career, I studied the main uh, disciplines of pathology. Mm -hmm. And in those days, you had to choose which you wanted to do. So I chose hematology, which fascinated me from the beginning. And uh, it happened. I guess I had an attraction for the public service because my father, uh, was an electrician, and he worked at the Cardiff Royal Infirmary, also for 40-odd years. And uh, things used to break down with the electrics and so on and so forth. And I remember as a kid, 
he used to take me in when he was called in to fix something, you know, and that. So I used to see these people walking around laboratories in white coats and things like that. I never liked sitting in exams very much, mind. (laughs) (laughs) So, Chris, were you always associated with the church and uh, had a high role within the church at the same time? Well, um, it's true to say uh, I was a kind of a dyed-in-the-wool Christian, if you like. Mm. Uh, I was just a regular member of the congregation for many, many decades. But I eventually uh, felt the call to ministry whilst I was working. And so I embarked on another degree course at Cardiff University doing what was called practical theology. Do you think working uh, at the same time in the church and having a senior role there actually conferred any advantages to your role in the lab and being a hematologist? Do you think it helped at all? And what were those advantages? I think it helped no end because it gave me, actually, both disciplines fed off each other Mm. because you need an empathy. Anything in the public service needs an empathy and the scientific service too. Uh, but as a, as, a, as a Christian, it would give me an opportunity to uh, show in a practical way uh, what it was, you know, to live with a faith. I always felt that the example that I, that I led and the people that worked either with me and for me uh, were inspired by the, by the love and the gentle nature and the acceptance of the talents of everybody. And on the topic of empathy, you actually uh, took part in a project, didn't you, in Africa at, at one point in your career where you're helping to train lab technicians across the sub-Saharan continent. Can you tell us a bit more about that project and oh, what exactly you yes. were doing over there? Yes, yes. I think it's probably fair to say, Jordan, it was amongst the very highest points in my life. Uh, the project itself spanned quite a number of years. Mm. Um, and I had an email popped up in my inbox one day and uh, was invited to the headquarters of the Royal College of Pathologists. And uh, I found myself being elected the uh, head of the Zambian delegation. Uh, the project took place in, in uh, several Central and Eastern African countries, namely Zambia, Zimbabwe, Uganda, Tanzania, and Kenya, uh, concentrated mostly on uh, the hospitals and the hospital laboratories in Zambia, although we did go uh, to the others, and held retreats, they were called, but they'd be attended by uh, delegations from all of those countries and various towns and cities within those countries. When everybody was gathered together, which happened on a few occasions, there were probably three or 400 people present. And what kind of work were you doing in the laboratories there? What kind of work were you doing to help train the staff? Right. right. Now, the, the project was, was called Lab Skills Africa. And the idea was, was to try and up the ante in the sphere of quality, really. In other words, to make sure uh, that uh, the tests that were being performed were actually being performed to the same high standards or as near as we could get it uh, to the tests and the analysis that we were doing in this country. Mm. Not always easy, of course, because of the nature of the equipment that was present in the African laboratories, which ranged from uh, places that were fairly well equipped. And indeed, some places um, like, for example, uh, the the Aga Khan University Hospital in uh, Nairobi was very well supplied. Um, but the, 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 the main thrust, really, was A, to uh, help them along with some of the technical uh, issues, uh, and B, in terms of management and the way that we could uh, structure our laboratories and the quality control 
uh, systems that we could put into place. And of course, each uh, each hospital from each country would then do a little project on uh, some particular aspect of what it was they were they, they were interested in. And uh, there were people uh, ranging from measuring hemoglobin levels in pregnant women to HIV testing and uh, all the gambit of biochemistry that was available too. So you brought back with you an expertise in parasitology uh, and in diseases such as malaria into the local lab in Wales. Well, that, that, that was fascinating. I have to say the malaria side of things because mm. uh, malaria in particular and blood parasites in particular uh, interested me anyway, even in my early days in UK. Mm. So I had, a, I had a reasonably decent knowledge of uh, malaria and blood parasites before I got involved in the project. But we'd have, like often happens in UK, you get the odd cases that turn up, you know, um, uh, throughout the year. And I felt that I was on the ball to know how to deal with it and to know how to do it. But of course, in the laboratories in, uh, in the African places, would probably get as many cases in a day of malaria as we would get in a year, and and so uh, the kind of uh, the, the, the kind of frequency we're dealing with it, and the staff that were there on hand who had you know not the greatest of equipment um, to actually diagnose it uh, were really helpful, and uh, some wonderful little tricks of the trade that they'd show me too, you know. Ultimately, of course, eventually there were various various little uh, lab-based tests, a little bit like the, the coronavirus test, and um, uh, those would demonstrate antigens, and they weren't entirely foolproof, but the laboratories did manage to get some of those, the African laboratories, and use those, as well as their microscopy. And so yeah. working, working hand in hand, with the folks in the laboratories there it was a real, real eye-opener. It's really interesting that then that your experiences in Africa was almost like a two-way exchange, wasn't it? Because on the one side, you'd take your expertise from the UK and how we do things here and the quality control measures and implement those in Africa. And then the expertise and experience from testing for diseases like malaria, you'd take to the labs in the UK. It was. So, yeah. 100%. 100%. And when I described it as one of the high points uh, of my career and even my life, um, I really meant it because it was, uh, it was a great experience and it was a great thing to bring back uh, to, to, uh, to this country. And to this day, I'm still in touch with many of the folks in the laboratories. It's December. It's our Christmas edition of IBMS Pod. I mean, have you got any stories or insights to share with our members from your time working over the Christmas period? You know, it's a special time of year, especially in your role uh, as a priest. Yeah. Well, Christmas was always an interesting time. The science went on. The request went on often come what may. And people would be coming in via trauma or whatever it was. Uh, that it happens Christmas any time of the year or whatever. And I do remember for, for, for many decades that we put up Christmas decorations in the laboratory. And wonderful. Somebody in the blood bank one year left the Christmas tree up and they, they, they were busy on Twelfth Night or whatever and they couldn't, take it, they couldn't take it down. And somebody told them, well, it's bad luck. If 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 you if you've left it up after twelfth night, you've got to leave it up all year. This <laughs> is a wacky idea seeing a Christmas tree in a blood bank in August. <laughs> they kept it up all year, did they? they? Kept it up all year, but uh, it was great fun. The one great aspect um, that, that 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 we had and and that that we have with. With our society today and the brothers and sisters that we can share with it, is that there was multifactorial, multicultured. And what a wonderful thing that for Christmas time, our brothers and sisters of other faiths would say, without even asking, 
we'll cover you. We'll do your shift over Christmas. And then, of course, we'd reciprocate for Eid or whatever it was, or, or Duvali, which is also great. I love them all. Well, to finish off, Chris, I know that you just recently uh, had the opportunity to perform the wedding ceremony for your daughter, Hannah, who is also a biomedical scientist in haematology. I mean, how was that? What was that like? Well, that that was just that that was just just incredible, and and it happened by sheer coincidence that the vicar of the church that she was being married in um, moved on to Birmingham, and he said he rang me up and said, "Chris, I'm not going to be there. Do you know any vicars could take a wedding?" I said, "It's funny you should say that. I'll do it," and so it was that I did it, oh. and. Uh, Thank God, a great privilege. Absolutely. Mind you, at the beginning of the service, I could hardly speak. So I had to take myself in hand and get a grip, which I did. They all went marvellous. So she's currently working in the haematology department in uh, Southmead Hospital in Bristol. Would you uh, say you so, did inspire Hannah to get into biomedical science? Well, I suppose I, I suppose in the respect that I was happened to be in the position that I could arrange to uh, uh, get her to see what it was all about. And so she did. So she did. Well, I wish you a very Merry Christmas. And thank you uh, very much for coming on today. And the same to you, Jordan. It was such a joy. My work in the community and my work in the church is such an honour. And such a joy. And if there's anything I can ever offer to the scientific community in the hospital or whatever, I'd be very happy to do so. It was happy days and I've been very privileged. Well, thank you very much, uh, Chris. Thank you, Jordan. God bless you. All the best. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode. These podcasts are released monthly at the same time the magazine comes out. So whenever a new issue lands on your doormat, head back online to listen to a new episode. And don't forget that these podcasts can be used for your CPD. Take care and bye.